Hey, I'm lead pastor Noel Petras, and welcome to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a home in the family of God, or feel called to be a part of a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in the Veterans Memorial Building at 324 North Cahuilla Avenue. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or find us on social media. Thanks for listening. The question I, I kind of wanted to start with is, you know, this passage, I mean, Jesus has kind of been warning us about this guy named Judas, right? It's not really the first time that we've heard of him. Uh, and I was thinking this week, you know, um, we, we're all divided in, in society, in our culture. We're all divided about what's right and what's wrong. And, you know, the church has a lot to say about what's right and what's wrong. And our culture has a lot to say about uh, what's right and what's wrong. And, and sometimes we, we can spend a lot of time arguing about what's right and what's wrong. Uh, but one thing I think we can all agree to, upon is that there's nothing worse than a traitor. You know what I'm saying? Shake your head if you, if you agree with me on that one. I just thought uh, t- today to start, turn to the person next to you and uh, like, what's the first traitor that you think of that comes to mind, you know? Go ahead, turn to the person next to you. I'm giving you permission to talk to your neighbor here. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know if, did anybody, did anybody say, uh, what's, who do you think is the most, just say it out loud, who's the most famous traitor of all time? Benedict Arnold, and then did someone say Judas? Because I think Judas is probably up there, right? Judas, Benedict Arnold. Um, I was thinking back to like uh, another guy who's kind of like Jesus. Anybody remember Johnny Damon, the baseball player, left-handed hitter? He had the long hair and the beard, played center field for the Red Sox when they won the World Series in 2004. And then he went to the Yankees the next year, sold out for money, cut his hair, shaved his beard. What a traitor, man. Traitor to facial hair, Red Sox loyalty. Anyways, maybe for some of you, it's LeBron James, Kevin Durant, golf fans. We got Phil Mickelson signing with the Live Tour. If you're an Angels fan, God bless you, but Shohei Otani maybe is a traitor. I don't know. He picked a better team in LA. <laughs> maybe it was like your friend that went to work in Woodlake. I don't know. Anyways, uh, uh, I think we can all agree that like nobody likes a traitor, you know? And when you feel betrayed, Man, it cuts deep. It cuts so deep. Well, um, <laughs> what do you think? What do you think Jesus has to say uh, about potentially the greatest act of treason ever committed? And uh, we we've come to uh, what's known as the Passion narrative. Uh, and today's passage it, it places us in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, the story of Jesus' arrest. And this is the start of really his trial. After this passage, he'll be put on trial. It's the, the final hours of Jesus' life. Again, we've got like four more weeks to go in, in the Gospel of Matthew, but there's only hours left in Jesus' life at this point. And, uh, you know, we've come to a, a trial of sorts. And over the next several weeks, we're going to look at the different characters in the trial. Um, and, and, and what I want to say at the outset today is that I believe part of what Matthew is doing as the author of this gospel is, is that he's trying to show us not so much um, how Jesus is on trial, but I think what Matthew is wanting to communicate is the trial of all the people involved in the trial. And, and I think actually this story is meant to tell us the trial of all humanity and our own culpability 
in the death of Jesus. See, we had we got disciples in this story. Judas, for example, you guys all called him the greatest uh, traitor the world has ever known. We've got Peter in this story. He doesn't behave rightly in this story or the stories to come. We've got the religious leaders. Did you know? Can you imagine your pastor killing Jesus? If you say yes, you get right out there. Go find another church. No. There's, there's, you know, the Jews historically have gotten a ton of blame for killing Jesus. But there's Gentiles involved in this story too. Oh, and that guy, what was his name? Pilate. Not the Honda car. Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor. The Romans were involved as well. And oh, those crowds. Remember the crowds. What did they shout? Crucify him. Give us Barabbas instead. So in these chapters, I, I think we're going to see clearly the enemies of Jesus. And, and if we're honest, I think we'll see that the enemies of Jesus are us. And here's the thing, you know, leaders, followers, important people, seemingly unimportant people, everyone in this story fails. Everyone fails except one man. There's one person in this story who doesn't fail. The one person who we think is on trial, but actually is just revealing to us his righteousness. You know that man. The one man who will be condemned to death is the one man who did not deserve it. And he gets what we deserve to get. So as we approach this passion narrative, I want us to, to think about ourselves being the one on trial. Today, there's three parts of the story that I think have a special significance for us today. And uh, so we're going to look at, first of all, uh, the sellout, Judas, right? Dude, who likes a sellout? Then we'll see what Jesus has to say about the sword. That's kind of interesting, especially for you gun owners in here. No, I'm joking. Sorry, I don't even know if we can joke about this. <laughs> what does Jesus think about violence? You got to read this passage and be like, wait a minute, no swords? What the heck? What the heck, Jesus? And then finally, we'll see what Jesus thinks about Scripture and his Father's sovereign will. And yes, if you're following along, those all start with the letter S to help us all remember. So let's start in verse 47. While he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer, and Judas doesn't even have a name anymore. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him, Judas said. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said to him, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Just a few things that pop out about this first part of the story about this traitor Judas. Number one, what does it say about Judas? Judas was one of the 12. And he gets a bad rap historically, right? And for good reason. I mean, you guys all, you guys all punched out his name from the very start. Who's the worst traitor ever? Judas! Benedict Arnold, that poor guy, and Judas. You betray America, you betray Jesus, you're bad. We know that in this country. We can all agree on that. But notice, Matthew makes sure to point out that Judas is what? He's one of the 12. The greatest sellout in human history was a part of Jesus' 
inner circle, one of Jesus' 12 closest friends. This is crazy. You know, one I, because we all think like I would, part of the reason we're so upset, we're so incensed by Judas' behavior is we, we tend to say things like, I would never do that, don't we? Don't we say things like that? Oh, I would never do that. I would never do that. And I think this is one of the biggest mistakes that we can make as a human being to think that we're not capable of enormous failures. Hasn't the gospel of Matthew showed us exactly what failure we're possible or we're capable of? Judas walked with Jesus. We talk a ton about being with Jesus. We're praying so we could be with Jesus. We come in here celebrating the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was literally, I'm sorry, Judas was literally in the flesh with Jesus. He was one of the 12. And yet he could still be bought for what? 30 pieces of silver, a few thousand dollars in today's currency. And then what does Jesus say? Or what does Judas say? Sorry, I'm having a little trouble mixing up those two words. Judas says, greetings, rabbi. And he kisses him on the, on the cheek or on the neck. Anyone have a friend, by the way, who greets you with a holy kiss? That's weird, man. Super weird. Anyways, some cultures, that's not so weird. One of my friends is an American who tries to do that to me. And every time I'm like, dude, that mustache, get it off of my cheek. Anyways, this is like, a, it's like a, because it's really intimate, isn't it? It's super intimate. I'm like, bro, don't kiss me. You know, it's too intimate for me. But this is how Judas greets Jesus in the garden that morning. It just, it, it reminds me that, that sometimes our, our worst sin is committed uh, behind the guise of intimacy and even respect. You're like, oh, what do you, what do you, what do you mean? You know, what do you mean, Noel? And I'm like, man, no, like this is where it gets like super ugly. You know, this is despicable. He's not just a traitor. He's doing it behind the guise of intimacy and respect. But if we're honest, we, we do this too. Like what's your version of respect and honor? Meanwhile, hiding this or that underneath your bed. You know, like church on Sunday, but showing up with resentment in your heart towards your spouse. Maybe it's small group on Wednesday morning, but drunkenness on Friday night. Maybe it's Bible by your bedside, but porn on all your devices. You get what I'm saying? Like we, we, we present, we put a facade at times of intimacy and respect all the while underneath. We got our own plans and you all got your version. Even if I didn't, you know, list yours, right? And I got my versions too. And, and what does Judas say? He says, Rabbi. And this, this on its face, it seems respectful. But if you've been following along, is Rabbi the right name for Jesus? Lord is the right name for Jesus. And only non-disciples have called Jesus Rabbi in the Gospel of Matthew. So these words are telling Judas has got veiled respect and honor for Jesus. But underneath it all, he's got a plan to betray him. He's close, but not quite. You know, Rabbi, well, that sounds respectful. Look, here's the deal this morning. Like, we, we can't just be close about what we think of Jesus. If Jesus isn't Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. He's not just a teacher. There's been a lot of great teachers in this world. We worship Jesus not because he was a great rabbi, but because he's Lord. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. Third thing about this little story, Jesus' response 
Now, some people would say that Jesus maybe was being a little sarcastic, and, 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 and I wouldn't put this past Jesus to be a little sarcastic, but I don't believe he was actually being sarcastic when he said, do what you came for, friend. See, one of the truest things about Jesus is what Matthew said in chapter 11 of his gospel. Jesus is a friend of sinners. You all said that Judas was one of the worst sinners you could ever think about, did you not? We all agreed. What Judas did was horrible, deplorable on a whole nother level. But Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus loves Judas. In the act of betrayal, as despicable as it was, we see the love of Jesus for this man, Judas. And I think in this small little de- uh, detail of the story, we, we see a Jesus who, who practices what he's been preaching. What has Jesus said about our enemies? Love your enemies. What has he said about turning the other cheek? Blessed are the violent? Blessed are the vengeful? No, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Man, Jesus is practicing what he preached. This is so powerful. The greatest traitor in human history betrays him with a kiss, and he calls him a friend. Friends, I'm here to remind you this morning that you cannot outsend the friendship of God. You cannot outsend the friendship of Jesus. Jesus is a friend of sinners. When he says, come to me, all you who are weary, he's inviting everyone, sinners and saints, come to me. Not come to a righteous lifestyle, come to me. We see Jesus, the friend of sinners. I could stop right here. This is the gospel news. Jesus Christ is a friend of sinners. The other half of that gospel, though, is that, that the truest thing about me is what I've already said this morning, is that I'm in desperate need of a Savior. I'm, in, I'm, a, I'm a sinner in desperate need of the Jesus who saves, the Jesus who's a friend to sinners. Have you heard that old gospel song? What a friend we have in Jesus. Love that song. We do. We have a friend in Jesus. Judas, in his weakest moment, found a friend in Jesus. Now, this is where the story starts to pick up some steam. So I'm going to continue on at the end of verse 50 as we take a look at the sword in this story. Then the men stepped forward. They seized Jesus and they arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword. He, he drew it out and he struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Now, a few things about the sword. First of all, I want to talk about the disciples' sword. Now, now if you've read the other gospels, you may know. So shout it out. Who is this disciple that's lopped off the ear? This is Peter, right? John's gospel is the only gospel to reveal Peter's true identity. John must have, I don't know if he had a beef with Peter, you know? He's like, dude, Peter, enough of you stealing all the stories. It was Peter who cut off his ear. Anyways, these last chapters, uh, uh, 
these last few chapters of the story about Jesus, his disciples, the crowds, the Jews, the leaders, the high priest, the governor. In all these stories, there's two central characters that keep coming up again and again. And you may have even noticed how we've kind of like, we've like scooted over a couple of these interludes in the last chapter that refer to what's happening with uh, Judas or what's happening, what's going to happen with Peter's denial. Uh, I believe that what's happening is that Matthew is wanting to show us two different ways to be a bad disciple. And more on that in just a couple of weeks when I'll preach on, on, I think, what we can learn from the story of Judas and Peter. But what can we learn today from Peter's use of the sword? Question that occurs to me, and I think a question that Peter got asked by Jesus is, do we need to defend Jesus? Does Jesus need our defense? And, and this is an interesting question, I think, for our day and age. Like, this is a, if we're just honest with ourselves, like, what do we do when people are attacking Jesus? What do we do when people are coming after Jesus? And, and one of the things I just want to ask ourselves is like, because I think there's been times in human history, right, where if we read the history books where people have tried to defend Jesus or tried to defend Christianity through violence. And I, I wonder, have we ever done it well? Like, I'm old enough to remember when Point Loma Nazarene were the crusaders, now they're the sea lions. Anyways, sorry, Amy went to Point Loma. I'm not picking on you, Amy. Right? You went to Point Loma for at least a little bit? All right. Amy's trying to hide back there. Sorry for calling you out. Anyways, yeah, but, but I mean, if we're honest, right? If we're honest, some of our best attempts at defending Jesus haven't gone so well. Am I right? Kind of like G uh, Peter in this story, cutting off the poor servant's ear. Whether it's crusades, fundamentalism, vile politics, civil war, bombing of like abortion. I don't know. Like, what is the thing where maybe it hasn't gone that well? And we could probably all think of other examples where we wonder, like, was that the way to do it? I don't know. And sometimes, you know, it's like a lot of times, probably it's with the best of intentions. Are you with me on that? And sometimes with the best of intentions, Peter's like, I got you, Jesus. You know what I mean? Have you, ever, have you ever felt like you had the best of intentions? Sometimes it's with the best of intentions that we actually hurt the gospel when we're trying to help it. I think we learned from this story that we have to beware of any sort of heroism, particularly like a heroism that, that would, that would uh, defend Jesus as if he's not able to defend himself. And isn't that what Jesus says in this story? See, we often think, I think, too highly of our own help our own ability to help. Think about this for a second. What did I say was the thing we all had in common? The thing that we all had in common this morning is that we all need Jesus. You know what Jesus doesn't have in common with us? You know, his need for us, right? We often think too highly of our own help. He could summon 12 legions of angels. And I, you guys can geek out on what 12 legions, how many angels that is and how much destruction they could do. I don't even know if that number is symbolic or if it's literal, but that's a, probably a lot. I've seen the damage that one angel can do in some of the stories in scripture. So he's like, man, I got all the defense that I need. My father did not cut the budget around defense spending. Anyways, he's like, I don't need, I don't need your swords, man. If I wanted to defend myself, I could do it. You get the point. Hopefully I haven't belabored the point 
But it also it also made me this this passage made me ask myself another question like, well, what does Jesus think about the sword, right? And the Jesus that we've seen, the New Testament Jesus, he was preaching peacemaking. He was preaching meekness, right? Love your enemy, turn the other cheek. Jesus, the Jesus movement seems pretty non-militaristic. Could we all agree? The Jesus movement has seemed pretty non-militaristic, but what about like the Old Testament? There was some military put to work in the Old Testament. And and did you know, even even Jesus, like if you go to Luke uh, chapter 22, Jesus knew that his disciples had swords with them that day. It says in, in Luke 22 that they had at least two swords and Jesus knew that they had swords. So gun owners, I think this applies. I don't think that Jesus is against the sword. He's against misuse of the sword. He's against misuse of force. And why would he, why would he teach us that way? Well, he says it here. He says, all who draw on the sword will die by the sword. And we've heard the phrase, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world. Yeah, violence tends to lead to more violence. I think Jesus would agree. In fact, in Genesis 9, it says that whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. So, hey, is Jesus anti-violence? Is he a pacifist? I think we have some reason in scripture to see that God at times allows for violence, but not at other times. And the Jesus movement was not a militaristic movement. And we should keep that in mind. I found myself thinking, but yeah, uh, yeah, but I want warrior Jesus. I want warrior Jesus sometimes especially when my loved ones are are getting attacked by this, that, or the other thing. I kind of want warrior Jesus, right? Like, you know, Revelation 19, Jesus, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty. You know, Jesus riding on a white horse, sword in hand. Don't we sometimes want this Jesus? If we're honest, sometimes we pray for this Jesus to come and purify the craziness that's going on around us. So here's the thing. I've kind of wandered through the woods, but I think the thing that we learn here is that we see, we see examples in scripture where violence is called for. Holy war, we'll call it. And then there's times where, where violence isn't called for. And this would appear to be the time, and, and, and we'll talk about why, but in Ecclesiastes 3, maybe you'll be familiar with this. It's a really famous proverb. It says that there's a time for war and a time for peace. So the question is, how do we know the right application for the right time for violence or for defense? And here's the key. See, Jesus, the thing he had going for him is that Jesus was in perfect relationship with his father. So Jesus was taking cues from the father. Is any one of us in perfect relationship with the father? But this is what we're pressing on to, right? And this is what we have through Jesus' life. So, so how do we know that he knew what he knew, I guess, is what I'm, is what I'm going to talk about next. And, and this is where we get to the third S, because Jesus points his followers to Scripture. So let's get to the culmination of the story by continuing on into verse 55. It says, in that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets 
might be fulfilled. Three things about these two verses. Number one, Jesus' knowledge of the scriptures led him into perfect union with the Father's will. Remember how he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus' knowledge of the scriptures led him towards the Father's will. He says in verse 54 and verse 56, you'll notice these similar phrases, the scriptures must be fulfilled. This is why it's happening this way. Because scripture has said that it will happen this way. And and the thing that I love is that Jesus' knowledge of the scriptures and his submission to the Father's perfect will, this is like unparalleled. Look, we can know the scriptures, but that's only one half of it. Are we submitted to the scriptures? Like we, we all know that Jesus said, love your enemies. We all know Jesus said, turn the other cheek. We all know that Jesus said, be reconciled to your brother, forgive, grace. We know those things, but it's easy to know and hard to do, is it not? And Jesus shows us that, that knowledge of the scriptures and submission to the Father's perfect will as written in them, that's the magic combination. And we would, don't, we would do well to know the scriptures and to live lives of deep submission to them. Second thing about these two verses, there's two uses of the phrase that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Verse 54, verse 56. I think what Matthew is trying to do, Matthew, the author of this gospel, what I believe he's trying to do is to show us once again that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of these scriptures. Remember the gospel of Matthew. I haven't said this in weeks, but I used to say it a lot. This book, this gospel is written to Jews so that they would know Jesus is the Messiah. That's the whole point, the whole perspective that Matthew's coming from. And I believe that what he's trying to do right here is to show these people, hey, Jesus, he trusts those scriptures that you hold dear. He knows them inside and outside. Now, some scholars would think that Jews at this time would have for sure had the whole Torah memorized. I heard a scholar this week say that Jesus probably had the Torah, the first five books of of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and all the prophets committed to memory, which is why he's able to so quickly and easily hyperlink verses here and there. But what I'm trying to say is that Jesus is being shown as a guy who knew the scriptures. If you were a Jew, you're like, whoa, this is our guy. He knows the scriptures that we're holding on to. He knows the prophecies that we're longing for. Anyway, I just, I, I, I guess something swelled up in my heart and I was like, man, oh, that we would love the scriptures like Jesus loved the scriptures. In the scriptures, I believe is God's perfect will. Have you ever wanted to know God's perfect will? Yeah, let's be a people who know the scriptures. That seems to make sense. The third thing that I want to point out in these two verses is that Jesus knows God's will as revealed in scripture. But again, it's not his knowledge that's most important. It's his submission to what he knew. It's doing what he knew. It's not enough to know. The disciples knew what was to happen. How many times has Jesus already warned them of what was about to happen? Multiple times he's been warning them. In our lives, it's been like eight to 10 months or so that Jesus has been warning them. These bad things are going to happen. And yet they happen and Peter freaks out and slices off this guy's ear. Anyone ever freak out in a moment like that? Man, they were steeped in the writings of the prophets. Like they knew all these things. And yet they still kind of freak out because it's not just about knowing. It's about submitting to the scriptures. 
And I just want to say, you know, like we study God's word here. And that's a high value at Exeter Valley Church. We study the word of God. But you know what's better than just studying the word of God is being submitted to the word of God. And we want to be a church that obeys the word of God. What's the use knowing without obeying? Anyways, despite all this, these disciples' knowledge of scriptures, despite all of that, this, this story ends with some fateful final words in verse 56. These words were so sad to me as we were reading all together. The story ends by saying that then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. And that's not like the kind of dessert that has two S's, the good kind of dessert. That's the kind of dessert that means they abandoned him and ran away. You know, um, we can be super quick to point our fingers or blame these disciples. Like, again, I would have done it better. Oh, these guys just ran. They must be cowards, you know? Um, and I think as I've been saying earlier this morning, you know, it, it's, I don't think that it's historically true that only Israel or only Rome was to blame for Jesus's death. And I think we see it in this last sentence. His own followers have done him in by their love for the sword first in Peter's example, by their cowardly desertion here in this example. Remember last week, they fell asleep in his moment of greatest need. Wake up. It's time to pray. Jesus had to tell them. And then as we know, the denials that are to come. And some of you uh, might be familiar with uh, a theological term uh, called the doctrine of total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity. It's this, and it's a little bit like maybe complicated, right? Maybe even a bit controversial, but the, the basic idea is that our sin has left us incapable of communion with God. And, uh, you know, for some of us, depending on how it's nuanced, it can be kind of harsh, because it basically says that we're totally depraved, which I actually don't think is the biblical account, because we're made in the image of God, are we not? But yet, we also have this fatal sin flaw that we can't get rid of without who? Jesus. So anyways, there's my two-second clip on total depravity. But see, uh, uh, this guy, F.D. Bruner, the guy that I've been studying as I've preached this gospel, he actually says that instead of the, the, the doctrine of total depravity, what we're seeing on display here is the doctrine of total undependability. Because what we see in, this, in these disciples, we could all agree, is a bunch of really undependable behavior. And if we're honest, we're, we're not too different than these disciples, you know, even on our best day. And not, I just like, it's so remarkable. Not even his closest disciples could be depended upon in the moment of greatest need. And uh, it reminds me um, of Paul's words. The Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, he said that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is a great picture of how all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even his 12 closest followers have deserted him in some way. Judas betrayed him. Peter cut off the poor servant's ear. And then the rest of them just ran away afraid when he needed them most. In Isaiah chapter 53, there's this prophetic word that says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Not like some of us have gone astray like bad little sheep, but we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have, has turned to our own way. And then it goes on to say, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And this brings me to the moment of great hope 
in this story. And maybe you're asking, like, what does this mean for us, you know? And, and why does this story matter? Why do the things that you shared even matter? Maybe some of you um, are asking the question along with me today and recognizing that we're all responsible for the killing of Jesus. Like, we all have played a part in this story. I think this is what Matthew's trying to get us to see. Like, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Maybe some of us have failed to be submitted to the scripture that we knew. Maybe some of us have have disobeyed teachings of Jesus by harboring resentment towards another. Maybe some of us are filled with pride in our own hearts, thinking that we're good enough and we've done it right. Is this the story of scripture? No, it's not. All of us, Judas, the disciples, the, the Jewish leaders, Pilate, the crowds, you and me, we've all played a part. Remember what Jesus said in the upper room as he was serving this meal to his disciples. He said, we've, you, you've all dipped your hands in the bowl. And isn't this true that we've all dipped our hands in the bowl? We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And this is why when we show up on a Sunday morning, we come to this meal recognizing that we've all dipped our hands in the bowl. We've all played a part. We've all, like sheep, gone astray. The good news, however, is that when we come to this meal, we remember not what we've done, but what he's done. This is fantastic news for a bad disciple like me, that Jesus Christ paid the price. He lived the life that I could not live. And when we come to this meal, we recognize our own error and we cling to his righteousness, the righteousness that's been paid on our behalf because Jesus is a friend to sinners. And Jesus' friendship to sinners makes sinners into saints. And the second half of the gospel is not just that you can be forgiven, but that you can be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Hey, hey, it's Pastor Noel again. Just wanted to say thanks so much for joining us here at the Extra Valley Church podcast. And don't be afraid to join us in person on a Sunday morning, 9.30 a.m. at the Exeter Memorial Building.